You're listening to Your Jewish Life Your Way with Karen Cinnamon, the podcast that explores what it feels like to be Jewish or Jewish in 2022. On the show, we divulge all of the secrets and know how to being confident in celebrating and living your Jewish life your way with easy, simple ways to embrace your mishpacha through the traditions and rituals you've been dying to learn more about. So save your kvetching. We are talking less Jewish guilt and more Jewish joy here on out. Yalla, forget about the right and wrong ways to be Jewish. It's time to create a Jewish life you love living. Welcome to another episode. This is quite an exciting one because as you're listening to this, I will probably be in Israel, in Tel Aviv, at a really exciting conference called Jews for Justice that I've been invited to. And I was invited to this conference by Chen Mazig, who have always held an incredible amount of respect for, I'm sure you know who he is, he's an Israeli writer and activist, and he's the son of Mizrahi Jewish refugees from Iraq and North Africa, and he's made it his mission to share his family's story with the world. And through his work, he's created an incubator in Tel Aviv, which I'm really excited to be attending alongside 15 other Jewish influencers from around the world. We're gonna learn all kinds of techniques, how to stand up for humanity, how to build community, strategies for dealing effectively with media and connections and there's going to be all sorts of exciting stuff. I'll definitely be covering it on Instagram so make sure you follow me at Your Jewish Life at the moment. Log on as soon as you finish listening to the podcast to see what exciting stuff I'm getting up to in Tel Aviv. But um, yeah, I mean, Hen and I connected a while back and it was just absolutely one of my goals to get him on the podcast. This is a really, really exciting episode for me to release. In this episode, you'll learn about, you know, Hen's famous line, how to love being Jewish 10 times more than anyone hates you for it. You know, there's constantly so much anti-Semitism dredged up and we're all about trying to make space for joy and pride amongst all the hatred and I think this episode will help you with it. It will help you with your Jewish identity and feeling more confident with your identity if you're ever shy to speak up about being Jewish. It will help you also if you feel marginalized beyond being Jewish, if you are LGBTQ or anything else that you sometimes feel hard to stand up for yourself. Tips on all of that. And we also just had a really good laugh and really, really good fun. This is just a great episode for you if you want tips on how to deal with life when society doesn't accept parts of your identity. And also, if you're a Mizrahi Jew, shout out to you. We also talked about Mizrahi culture and the secret source of Mizrahi culture that makes Israel so awesome. So enjoy this episode. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the podcast, Chen. It is such a joy, an honor, a thrill to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's a joy and thrill and an honor and something that I've been looking forward to, to for a long time. So thank you for having me. And we're going to dive into so much good stuff. We had a little preliminary chat, Chen and I, and there's just so many good topics to cover. We should dive right in. One of the things that I want to know to start with is I want to get to know a bit more about you and your childhood. You know, we see so much of your wonderful work online. You're such an expert at social media and creating incredible messages and, and um, pieces. And I'd like to dive in and let's start with your with your life growing up and your childhood. Can you talk to me about how your Israeli identity or your refugee background shaped your life growing up? Uh, sure. And uh, and it's, again, fully mutual. Uh, I've been admiring your content. You're such a joy for the Jewish community to have you online. And uh, my my upbringing, uh, I grew up in, in Israel. Um, it's funny because now looking back and, and knowing a lot more than what I knew growing up, I, I you know, I grew up in a religious family, um, but I never considered myself really religious. Maybe when I grew up, I thought I thought I was religious. We, you know, we kept Shabbat, we kept the holidays. I was fasting on Yom Kippur since I was nine to impress my dad because my dad was more religious and it was a was a way to impress him. In and of itself, I think that my connection to Judaism from an Orthodox background was was not as deep as it is now. And I know that while I knew all the prayers and I knew by heart everything that we need to do and all the halacha and all the laws, and that was my, from kindergarten to uh, to my elementary school, like that was part of my education. But 
I didn't really feel connected. And in a sense, I think I've discovered that recently with my work. And I can still say that I'm secular in a sense that I'm not, maybe I, I mean, I guess this way many Jews would be secular because I'm struggling with my, with what I think God is and my connection, struggling, not that I don't think God exists, but my connection to Hashem is different than well, it's not different. It's very Jewish. My connection to Hashem is very Jewish. I do believe in a, you know, in a source. And I believe that very Kabbalistic uh, approach to it that, you know, love the writing of Emmanuel Avinas and, and Jewish, Jewish philosophers that were talking about discovering the Jewish identity as, as a hacker that is trying to, um, to hack into what, what life is. And that's, that's something that I really connect to. So I, I grew up, I grew up in Petah Tikva. It's a small suburb of Tel Aviv. Uh, I family more... there too. I know it very well. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I feel like I should say, I'm sorry, but <laughs> people don't really think highly of Petah Tikva. Uh, I think it's great. I have, I mean, yeah, I have great memories. I, I was there recently. Then. I, I'm a fan. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> not many Israelis are a fan of Petah Tikva. There's actually a song that about how Petah Tikva is not real and that it's uh, in Hebrew, but never mind. Uh, you know what? A, you know about Petah Tikva? It's like a, it's like a lover. It's like when you're there, you can't stand it. But then you know, here we're both living in London at the moment. You miss it. You know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. It's um. But but yeah, it's it is the butt of many jokes in 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 Israel. Um, but I I I love my childhood. I think I was uh, you know my my mom is Iraqi, my dad is Tunisian. Like I mean my we have the shared Iraqi uh, um, Iraqi mothers, yeah. Which some argue that are even more uh, intense than uh, Polish moms. So I think that's <laughs> I can't compare, but um, yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, my mom has uh, 11 brothers and sisters and my dad has 16. So it's very big family uh, and they have wow. kids. So it's. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Names. <laughs> and and are you, were you close with all your cousins growing up? Uh, not all of them. I I had a few that I was very close with. I, I know all of them. Of course, we, we were together in every holiday, but uh, but the, I had a few that I was more close with. I My, my mom's older brother, uh, Itzik married um, a Danish woman uh, in Rieta that converted to Judaism and, and she's probably we're calling her the rabbi of the family because she knows more about Judaism than anyone else and and she was she kind of t- took me under her wing in a sense I think in a, in a sense she was my uh, I had my Iraqi mom and I had my Danish mom and both of them I think contributed a lot to my uh, um, to who I am and yeah, and I and I I never really knew what I was going to do with my life. I had uh, I had I didn't growing up in Petah Tikva. Your um, it's kind of a mall of of a path that you need to go to go, go through. And it, I didn't see myself as a writer. I didn't see myself being able to things that I that I can do. But uh, that I'm doing today, I didn't have as much as um, inspiration. And when I was when I was younger, then I think growing up, life has thrown so many challenges at me and so many struggles and and. From everything, I mean, the social economic background of my family is still very is low. Um, growing up in Petah Tikva, in a city of mostly minorities like Mizrahim, Ethiopian, Russians around me, I, I didn't have as much as uh, um, inspiration to do stuff. And I think reading books was what really helped me, especially reading books in English. I was I fought to read in English like that. That was a struggle because I didn't have anyone to teach me. And in school, we didn't really learn English that well. But I. That, that I think reading books was really what inspired me more. And then when I was a teen, I was, I was convinced that there's greater things out there for me uh, to do that I have, you know, I can do, I can do whatever I want, basically, that really changed as, as I grew up. And, yeah, and then I served in the army for five years as a humanitarian officer uh, in the West Bank, in Hebron and Ramallah. And following that, I moved to America, lived there for a few years and moved back home, then moved to London, where I live today. And you say during your teenage years, you you suddenly realized that there is actually a lot of possibility for me and a lot of opportunity and I can do whatever I want. What what sparked that openness and that possibility in you? It's a good question. I I think definitely my mom and my and my Danish aunt that really was since I was young, she was telling me about Denmark and how and her background, where she's from. Yeah, well outside my, my of mom also yeah, exactly. So I think that I think that was part of it. But I also think that the books that I was reading and um, and and watching 
TV. I was addicted to American TV when I was a teen. And uh, I just, I told myself that I, that I don't want to go in the path that was made for me in the sense that I want to break through and I want to do great things and um, trying to do that. I feel like I'm doing, and, doing and, it today. And you must have made a concerted effort to master the English language because you said, you know, during your childhood, you didn't have particularly great English lessons, English teachers, exposure to English. Of course, everyone in Israel has exposure to English through, through you know, a lot of the films and TV is not dubbed, it's subtitles, but still your writing in your second language of English is so moving and eloquent and touching. How did that transformation happen to write for a living in your second language? Thank you. Um, third language. Um, third language. Yeah, I mean, so, growing up, I, yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it's actually a good question because it's really connected to growing up speaking Arabic in at home with my uh, my grandmother still speaks Arabic with my mom and her and her daughters and sons and but it was something that I was ashamed of in Israel. There's uh, there's this um, and I, you know I'm, I'm guilty of it too. We we look up to the West and we look up to America and it's and and Europe. Uh, and Europe is, and it's not only in Israel, in many countries, it's like that, that Europe is this, um, we idolize Europe and, and, and America and the West in general. Um, and I think that everything that is Middle Eastern is, um, is not really, is not regarded as highly as, as the West. The East is not highly regarded in, in general. I mean, I'm, I'm painting everything in a white brush, but that, that was my experience growing up. I remember that I had a teacher that in, in elementary school that asked us for our favorite artist from, or music, musical, musical artists from home. And everyone gave names of, you know, either Israeli artists or, or Americans or, or British. And when it got to me, I was I said, well, uh, my favorite artist is Um Kultum, this Egyptian singer that we're, we're listening to her at home. And um, my teacher was started laughing and the whole class was laughing. And she said something like, these people have no culture. And I remember that really affected me. Like this, this mentality made me um, hate the hate Arabic, hate my culture, and and maybe also pushed me to to learning English better and, and to be able to write in English as I write today is this uh, anti-fragility theory that the more you're oppressed, the stronger you become. And I think that, that what, that's what happened to me. Mm, absolutely. And tell me um, another thing that I, I wanted to expand on that I thought was really interesting was what you said about, you know, in a way you had a religious childhood, you had certain traditions thrust upon you, I guess. And, but yet, one would expect you to have felt sort of closer to religion, closer to God in that period than in your secular adulthood. But what I find really interesting is we all have what we have in our childhood, but actually it's really exciting as adults to define Judaism in our own way, what's right for us and how it should feel for us. And no one can tell us, you know, what we must be doing, what we should be doing. And I think that's also something that we need to shed you know, you talked about shame earlier, and let's talk a bit about that, about sort of choosing your Jewish identity in a way that's meaningful for you. Yeah, and, and I love that you make this uh, this point often on your uh, on your social media and on Instagram. I think it's such an important idea, and especially now that we are so are so little, number, so small in number, and instead of welcoming people in, some people within our community are gatekeeping or making Jews feel like they are less Jews. And I have a good friend in the UK, in the UK and she was struggling because her boyfriend is not Jewish. And I'm saying, and, and she she says that she feels like she almost wants to, to leave Judaism behind because of that, because people would judge her, people would not accept her. And I told her, like, that's the worst thing. Do you, do you really think that that's what Hashem wants? Do you, think, do you really think that's the that's the essence of Jewish life is to just turn and say, you know, if I'm not doing this, I'll just move on. It's, I think that it doesn't matter if you're not keeping, I mean, who's keeping all the mitzvahs? Who's following Allah fully? No one, not even the the greatest rabbis and the greatest uh, yeah. um, trying, uh, we're all just doing what makes sense for us as Jews. And I think that's the important thing. And I, and I encourage her to do everything Jewish. I said, you're going to have a Jewish wedding and there's going to be a rabbi and there's going to be the whole thing. And it doesn't matter if your boyfriend wants to, to convert or not, you're going to keep your Jewish identity. And it's something that I also struggled with when I was, you know, being queer and uh, being gay man and growing up in an Orthodox family. Well, they're not ultra Orthodox, they're not Haredim, but, but still very Masorti in a sense. And my dad used to say, well, you know, if you're, when I came out to him that just make sure that a wedding will not be Jewish. Like, don't don't insult uh, our culture. And 
I was really hurt by that. And I, and I still, I think that I, I, I thought that he was right in the beginning. And I think that it's so reductive and so terrible to send this message to other Jews to say, you know, if you're not doing the full thing that, and what is the full thing? And what is the whole halacha? And halacha is changing. And, you know, women couldn't divorce within Judaism. And now we're, we're doing that. And, th- and we couldn't wear mixed fabric. And, and things are changing. And Judaism is evolving. It has to evolve for us to survive. So I just, I really encourage people to connect to their Jewish identity and not let anyone tell you that you're not Jewish enough. You're Jewish enough, no matter, and I, I made this post, that no matter what you put in your, in your cheeseburger, and no matter... <laughs> Um, uh, what you do on Shabbat and what you know what music you listen to on Shabbat you're still you're still Jewish enough and I just love your actual example of you had what we could call a religious childhood you know an orthodox would you say upbringing yet you feel closer to your Judaism as an adult where you perhaps are not practicing it in the same level but your your meaning and what what you and what you do is you know sparking that sense of identity um i think that's really interesting a lot of people think oh but if i if i don't go to synagogue often or i i don't keep kosher then will i even be jewish anymore you know and i really want people to take that away from the episode today at the very least if not you know lots of other things that it's not about the amount of jewish stuff you do makes you a, a, a jewish person so one thing I'd particularly like to, to expand on is you say in your work you use social media to empower marginalized people. Can you expand a little bit about what you mean by that? I've noticed that I have this um, ability to take, in, in the past I used to write articles and my, uh, my op-eds were in the in LA Times and NBC News and, and Business Times and, and so forth. And I realized that if I have a talent to writing um, long things, I can also write short messages. And, um, and I use Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to promote this message. Now I'm trying to use TikTok, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm still not there fully. It's, uh, uh, I feel like uh, an old person on TikTok. Because <laughs> it's so really, um, but I'm trying. Um, and I, so I realized that I can take my messages and really uh, adjust them to, to social media. And, and I gained more and more followers. And I saw that my message was resonating with many Jews. Um, and I'm talking about everything from um, Jewish identity, of course. Israel is a big part for me. Um, LGBTQ rights, um, minorities, and anti-racism, all these all this issues really, issues that, that matter to me. And I know that matters to other Jews because this is our essence. I mean, Israel is the way it is because of the of the values of, of the Jews that Judaism is is teaching us. And yeah, and about a few years ago, I, uh, together with Dr. Ron Katz, um, which is a, he used to be a lecturer in Berkeley on rhetoric and, and the use of uh, um, propaganda in war, that was his main topic of study. And, um, and together with him, uh, we, we founded the Tel Aviv Institute, uh, which is not, um, not associated with Tel Aviv University, but uh, it's basically an institute that is using data analysis to find the best messaging to use online. And instead of just doing it on my platform, we're working with a lot of many other people, um, Jews and also some non-Jews that care about the about anti-Semitism and want to fight hate um, and care about the Jewish community um, and using their platforms to to speak about that. So we we founded our institute that is doing that. We're training through laboratories that we hold. Uh, we held one in New York. We're going to help hold one in Tel Aviv very soon. Actually, probably by the time that this uh, this is out, we go. You and I are going to be in Tel Aviv. Yeah, <laughs> yeah super excited for that. <laughs> Yeah, and um, with a group of uh, about 20 other social media influencers that are coming from different backgrounds and we're bringing them together to, first of all, learn how to use social media, use, use social media for good, rather. That's, that's, the, that's what we believe in. And the second part is also to connect with other like, like-minded Jews and non-Jews that want to take this, this fight on. We do care about representation and we want to make sure that the Jewish community is, is represented in all of its diversity. And I think that often we're, many conferences that I've been to, it wasn't, I didn't hear many Jewish women and many Jews of color and black Jews. And, and we have, and, and all of those fellows that we have today that are working within Tel Aviv Institute are all so diverse and so amazing. And it's not to say that 
we don't want men or that we don't want specific type of Jews. We want all Jews to be represented and we want to represent really the diversity of our community. And in a, in a way, we're imagining creating this, we call it a Jewish Avenger, um, a Jewish Avengers, a, a team of elite fighters that are coming from different backgrounds and each one of them has his own unique superpower. And we want to bring the story of the Jewish people out to the world. And using social media today is the best tool. I mean, you bring up um, leaders and, and you bring down governments and you're uh, and you can sell products and you can and ask Kim Kardashian, like social media is the way uh, is the way to to make a difference. And some people use it for bad for for bad. And we know that as Jews, um, but we hope to use it for for good. What an incredible impact your work is having and, and ripple effect, you know, from the writing to mastering social media to now with the tele, this founding the Tel Aviv Institute and bringing in all kinds of other influences, myself included. I'm so excited, like Ken said, by the time this podcast is out, we'll be in Tel Aviv actually learning together and being part of this Tel Aviv Institute. I will report back. I'll probably do a podcast episode about it in due course. You know, I mean, you could never forecast this when you were growing up in Israel where Jewish identity is at the forefront. What do you think sparked you to, you know, moved you to, to be an activist, to be fighting, like you say, for Jewish people, for Israel, um, the queer community as well, I know has played a role in your work. What, what, do you, what would you attribute, you know, in your character or your childhood or identity to you, to you being such a, an activist? I think that it has a lot to do with, uh, of course, with my childhood and, and with experiences that I had in my life. Um, being someone that was told always to be ashamed of his identity um, since growing up um, from whether it's, you know, I grew up in a very homophobic society and, and people around me in my neighborhood were very homophobic. They use gay as a slur in Hebrew constantly. And then even my my uh, family story being Mizrahi was something that I wasn't really proud of. Um, and then when I moved to America after my military service, I, I moved to, I was in, in New York for a few months and then in Seattle. And I think that then I realized that it's, there's another part of my identity that I, that people are telling me to be ashamed of. And it's my Jewish identity and my Israeli identity. Just uh, the place that I was born at was, you was weaponized against me. It wasn't, it didn't matter what I think about Israel or what I think about Palestine or that I support a two-state solution and I want to see peace and I care. All I want is peace. Like I, I I'm going to have kids one day hopefully here in Israel uh, we're gonna me and my partner want to adopt kids one day and I we're going to raise them in Israel and I don't want to send them to the army like that's no Israeli want to send their kids to the army but when I arrived to New York and Seattle I've realized that it doesn't matter that I'm a queer person that I'm the son of Iraqi mother and Tunisian Amazigh father Amazigh are the tribal people of North Africa uh, that's where my family is from that's why my last name is Amazigh and uh, but all of this, you know, being a minority and an indigenous minority and person of color in this, in the sense of person, in the description of person of color in, in the U.S., being queer, all of this did not help me to get a seat at the table in the conversation about intersectionality and the conversations about in, in progressive circles. Um, and, and it's really connected to my childhood because I really always knew that parts of my identity were not acceptable in society. And once again, it was, but you know, it was shocking because it was from the left, it was from the progressive circle. My, the place that I feel most safe at as a queer person and all of my identities, but then the Jewish part and the Israel part really didn't fit unless I was willing to throw my, my family, my community, uh, my country under the bus. And I, um, I often say that, you know, when, the, when people say Israel has no right to exist, for me, it's, it's saying, that my mother and her 11 brothers and sisters and my dad and his brothers and sisters and their parents um, and my cousins and, and uncles and aunts that by and large, I mean, maybe you have one aunt that can write in English, but other than that, none of them can really articulate things in the way that I can online and they don't have social media uh, in, in English um, and they don't they can't defend themselves. Uh, and people say Israel has no right to exist. It means that none, none of them should exist. There wasn't when my grandparents were forced out of Iraq and Tunisia, no one offered them an asylum. They couldn't go to America. Some Iraqi Jews were able to go to the U.S. because if they had relative and they had connections. But other than that, there wasn't any country in, in the 50s that was open that opened its gates to Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. And that's how a million of them ended up in Israel and lost actually land that is equal to five times the size of the state of Israel today. So if you take the size of the state of Israel and put it together five times, that's the amount of land that was stolen from 
Jews from the Middle East and North Africa from 1941 to, to 72, even before the creation of Israel, they were expelled. So the notion that people say, you know, oh, I'm just against Israel's existence. Well, no, you're against my existence and you're calling for, I, I just can't see it as anything else but a death threat. And that's why it's really important for me to speak about that. Yeah, and I and I feel exactly the same about Israel. You know, you're talking when someone says I, I'm anti-Israel, they're talking about my cousins, my my most loved ones, you know, my my dear family in Israel who are absolutely everything to me. It's about real people with real lives and you know, in, incredible young people who've got their whole lives ahead of them. It's sort of all lumped into one word, Israel. But um, look, this is this is a whole episode in itself. We, we've got so much more to talk about. What we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with Ren. Just want to take a brief moment to tell you about my community, Smashing Life. It's a beautiful Jewish community that I'd absolutely love you to be a part of. It's a place to build the life you want on your terms, empowered by a community of like-minded Jewish women from all over the world. We have masterclasses and parties and get-togethers and socials and so much more. Um, Why don't I hand over to Ashley, one of our members from Los Angeles, and she can tell you what it's all about. So my favorite thing about being in Smashing Life is that it provides access to basically a group of friends where it's safe to share things that are good, that are bad, and things that you would never share publicly, like, I just took a pregnancy test and it came back negative. This sucks, everybody commiserate with me, or someone at work just threw me under the bus, and you know, people are so supportive, or you get to share something positive, like, you know, I just got a promotion at work, but I can't share it yet because it hasn't been announced yet. You can just share everything with each other and get you know support you can get just your group of friends cheering you on or commiserating with you supporting you for whatever you need and it's it's so special so there you have it that smashing life it's an incredible community membership club for jewish women and i'd love you to join just head to smashinglife.club smashinglife.club and join today so, Chen, one of the Instagram posts that I think you're most well known for is that iconic phrase that you coined, which is, I love being Jewish 10 times more than anyone hates me for it. And we'll link to that post in the show notes because I'm sure all our listeners will want to share it on their feeds if they haven't already. So, what tips do you have for someone to love being Jewish 10 times more than anyone hates them for it? Oh, that's a good one. And I, and I was thinking about this post while I was getting so much hate from um, people that, are, well, maybe bots, I don't know, but anti- I received so much anti-Semitic uh, attacks on online. And I spoke to a friend of mine, actually one of the people that worked with me at the Tel Aviv Institute. And I said, you know, I'm, I keep on fighting anti-Semitism, but it's not for, it's not because of the anti-Semites. Like they're not the ones that I'm fighting for. I don't want to change. I mean, I'm, I want to change their minds and I want to make it, make the world better to, for Jews. But the most important thing is that I fight for my people. And that's what leads me, the love for my, for my people, the love for all Jews and the belief of our story. So I think my advice if, is to always try and see the positive. And that's something that I'm always taking with me. And that's a really Jewish thing to do. It's always to try and find the best about people. And I promise you that everyone has a good side. And even if someone there's someone that you uh, that you don't like and, and that you, you know, we're talking about neshama in Judaism, the, the, the soul of a person. So there's, there's, a, there's an essence in everyone. There's good in everyone. And if we focus on the bad and the negative, we get to a point that we're, um, that we're seeing this person in a way that they're not. And if we focus on the good, we create a better image of a person in our eyes. So my advice is to always try and find the best in um, in everyone. And and that also goes to our community, to, to Jews. I mean, to try and find good in each other. And even if we disagree, I mean, I know it's shocking, Jews disagree sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we must be able to to love one another and really lead with love. And I, I wrote another another quote that was used recently after the, the synagogue um, hostage situation in Texas a month ago. I, I wrote that being Jewish and alive is a miracle. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it's and that and the, this first part of the sentence was I think is very important because we need to remember that our existence is nothing short of a magic. We are all the children of refugees. We, so many people and countries and, and forces and 
you know, whether it's the Holocaust or, or every, in every generation, people try to eradicate our people and our existence and the fact that we are alive and we are able to have this podcast that will go online and people will listen to it and my social media and the fact that we are able to do that, that's a miracle. And we cannot, and not only for our children, but also for our ancestors, we can't just be blasé about that or, or not give it the the way that that it deserves it is a miracle our existence and our lives are a miracle well i have i have goosebumps when you when you said that line to be jewish and alive is a miracle but it shouldn't be it, you know um it, it puts everything in perspective and i also uh when i was reading some of your articles in advance of the podcast i found this great piece you'd written in the jerusalem post about trying to find acceptance as both a Jew and a member of the LGBTQ. And you talked about, you know, living in London and going to this wonderful party. Can you describe a bit about that party and why, why it meant so much to you, that moment? Yeah, of course. Um, well, it's called, it's quite a funny name. It's called Bat Mitzvah, um, but it's spelled B-U-T-T. Um, Bat Mitzvah, yeah. <laughs> And it's a it's a it's a queer Jewish celebration. They call it the the biggest queer Jewish simcha, which I agree. And there's another one coming up actually in uh, uh, in April, in the beginning of April, April second second. Um, and you know you go there and there's so many young Jews that are so proud of their identity. People wearing kippahs, people wearing Jewish stars. There was it was Hanukkah, so the theme was Hanukkah. There was a a, a, a Jewish girl that dresses a menorah and. Sir Ian McCallum was there dancing, and there was uh, Honey G, the rapper, was on the stage, and they had uh, Jewish drag queens performing. One dr- drag queen called Ashkenazi. Um, mm-hmm. I would, queen. I would have loved to have been there. <laughs> we should definitely, we should go together to the one in April. Let's um, do it. <laughs> it was just incredible, and they uh, they handed out bagel and they handed out pickle, deal pickles. <laughs> It was really an amazing celebration of Jewish identity and Jewish pride. the The theme of uh, of the April party is uh, "Let my people go." So uh, you can you can imagine how people are going to dress. And, um, and what I loved about why why I mentioned that article in, in relation to you know these 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 little snippets, these little quotes that you come up with that you put on social media and it become very shareable, was there was a line in that piece that I I really took a lot from. And it was this, sometimes we spend so much time fighting off the hate, we forget the power of creating space for joy and acceptance. And yeah, that's something that really spoke to me because that's what, what I'm trying to do with, with, with my platforms. And, and I know that, you know, selfishly in a way, I don't want to spend too much content on, on the hate and, and, and spotlighting that and fighting that. I want to create this space for joint acceptance. And it was interesting just, just re, you know, you, t- you take on that hate and you take it on. And, you know, how do you find that balance? And, and, and are you happy to focus just on, on the hate, you know, fighting off the hate? Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's why this party was so important for me in, in London, because I was in, in London and after the recent, um, and after May 2021, things have been so difficult. And to see my, my partner's friends from the UK, people that I like, that know that I'm Israeli, posting horrible things on their social media about Jews and about Israel, but no one, other than the Jewish community, no one was condemning the anti-Semitism that, I, that we experienced, the, the calls in the streets of London to do terrible things to Jewish women. All of this really paralyzed me. And I found that every time these things happen to me when I'm feeling paralyzed, I have to to do something good. I have to positive to to post something positive, and there are many Jewish voices online that I'm really afraid are falling to towards the negative and attacking other Jews, or I mean, even go, go as far as attacking other Jews online. And that's really a red line for for me and the Tavim Institute. What we're doing, Tavim Institute, we're just we're focusing on on the good and on positive. And yes, we need to call out anti-Semitism, but it can't be the only thing that we're doing. Our identity cannot be formed by the hatred that we experience, because that's the worst thing that we can do. We can't play into the hand. That's what anti-Semites want. They want Jews to always fear, to think that they are this, everything that they are saying that we are. And I'm really afraid of young Jews losing their connection to Judaism because it turns into just, you know, I, I need to fight hatred and everyone hate us. And, and the truth is that not everyone hate us. And we have many allies and we can create more allies. But the way to do it is not by calling everyone anti-Semite. It's by uh, really share what being Jewish is and really be vocal about, about 
the joy of Jewish life. And there's so much Jewish joy. I mean, look at your platform. I, I love your, your reels and your videos. They make me so happy. And I, and I always encourage people that in, in our conferences and, and young Jews that are speaking to me online, I'm saying you can't just follow those people that are making fighting anti-Semitism their job. I mean, it's, it's important to find anti-Semitism. I mean, I mean that's, that's how I made, not, not career, but that's what, that's what I've been doing for the last decade. But, uh, but it can't be our only thing. We have to really celebrate Jewish identity. And there's so much beautiful stories and so many things to, to share with others. I mean, every holiday is magical. Every, every Jewish story, your, our family stories, our, uh, our existence, again, it's, again, it's really, and, and that's why my quotes are all about that, because I truly believe in that. I believe that there is so much beauty, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of balancing. And, and every time you get to a point that you're seeing your feed is becoming very uh, dark, just try and diversify it and follow people that are bringing more Jewish joy and and that that is, uh, you know, it's 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 really hard with social media because they're they really encourage people feeling afraid and, and upset. But it we we must resist that. And what do you love about being joy, Jewish? What what brings you Jewish joy? And more specifically, what do you love about being Mizrahi? And can we define Mizrahi for anyone listening who may not know exactly what that term means? Of course, yes. Um, okay, so. People probably are aware of Sephardi and Ashkenazi, which are two streams of Jewish uh, tradition. It doesn't say anything about what a person is because it's all about, you know, the traditions and the prayers and the way you're praying. Um, so you can be there. There are black Jews that are Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews, there are black Jews that are Sephardi. It's just two streams of Jewish um, way of praying and way of singing the, the prayers and and. Um, and of course, many Jews, many Ashkenazi Jews lived lived in Europe, and and for uh, after our expulsion from from Israel, Sephardi Jews come lived in. Uh, they're not coming from Spain. We all, all Jews came from Judea. Um, that's really important to say that. But Sephardi Jews uh, lived in in Spain. That's why the word Sephardi comes from Sephard, Sephard, Sephard means Spain. And then many of them were uh, were expelled to uh, after the Spanish Inquisition to North Africa. And you had those two communities in the Sephardi tradition way of praying and, and in the religious tradition, uh, the Sephardi religious tradition was really centered in, uh, in North Africa and in Iraq, where uh, Rambam Maimonides was, uh, was writing a lot of the Jewish texts that we're following today. So that's the main uh, distinction that we know in Jewish uh, religious uh, tradition. So a lot of people would identify as Sephardi Jew because they're um, they're connected to their religious traditions, and some people would identify as Ashkenazi Jew because of their religious tradition. Mizrahi means East and that, um, a person of the East, and the term Edota Mizrah, the people of the East, has been used for um, hundreds of years. Uh, and that was really referring to the people that lived in North Africa and, and Iraq, not to their religious affiliation or, or religious uh, uh, practices, rather than to their culture and their identity. And while all Jews share, you know, we share culture and we share history, we have shared history, Mizrahi Jews are are defined as, as people that lived in Arab and Muslim countries that grew, uh, that their families are, you know, speaking Arabic, Judeo, Judeo Arabic, whether it's um, Iraqi Judeo Arabic or, or um, um, my family speaking Judeo Tamazig from my father's side, which is the uh, the Amazigh people's uh, language from North Africa. So, uh, um, so Mizrahi really encapsulate more than just religious practice, and I feel like it it fits better for me because my identity is more than just the religious practices that I practice. I do practice uh, Sephardi tradition and, uh, and the way that I sing, uh, we're, we're both going to sing, uh, we're both going to welcome the angels of peace every Friday, but it's gonna be a different melody to it. And that's, that's the Sephardi Ashkenazi thing. But, the, um, but for me, Mizrahi really encapsulate the culture and the language and, and my identity in this sense. What I love most about being Jewish, and then I'll tell you about Mizrahi Jewish. Well, maybe I'll, I mean, being first of all, being Jewish is, is a joy for me because I know that I have people. Uh, I know I'm part of a people. And no matter where I am, I know that there are people like me that I can, that I feel like they are my family. I do see Judaism and I see Jewish people as one big family. And yeah, of course, you're not going to get along with all of your family members, but you're gonna have family and you're going to have people to count on. Um, and I, I love those Friday dinners that me and my partner host in, in London. Almost every week we invite other people and some of the most incredible Jewish, young Jewish artists and, and um, you know, like uh, musicians and people that are, have such strong Jewish identity, but I feel like maybe the synagogue is not the right place for them. And I 
maybe some rabbis will criticize me for that, but I think that uh, synagogues are really important. Of course, they're one leg of Jewish identity, but I think that those Shabbat dinners are really such a, an important part of Jewish um, identity and, and those conversations and the fact that we all come together and we and we all going to eat challah and we're all going to bless the wine and we're all going to drink the same, you know, not the same wine, but we're all going to do the, the same thing that our ancestors have been doing for thousands of years. That for me is one of the strongest thing. And I, I have a Native American friend, a Jewish friend from uh, from New Mexico, and, and she tells me that those traditions are so indigenous traditions because of our connection to the land of Israel. You know, we pray towards Israel. We break the glass on on uh, uh, on every wedding, and we remember Jerusalem. We wave the the species, the, the four different species on Sukkot to different directions of the wind. That's a very indigenous native uh, thing to do. And also, what where I was going with it is that the the welcoming of spirits every Friday. We welcome the angels of peace, but we don't realize that we're basically inviting spirits into our home, and we ask them to bless us. And that's very Native American, indigenous um, uh, people's uh, tradition. So all of this is so beautiful, and for me, like that's. That's a big part of, of why I love my Jewish identity. What you say about Shabbat dinners, I couldn't agree more. And I also think another beautiful thing about hosting a Shabbat dinner or attending a Shabbat dinner is meeting new people. You know, you may meet someone interesting Jewish or even not Jewish and say, hey, come and join for Shabbat dinner. And there's this central theme for want of a better word that everyone's connecting over and it creates intimacy and friendship and and to anyone listening that, that that's thinking oh I wish I could be invited to one of Chen's dinners or go know someone that has a great Shabbat dinner start your own Shabbat dinner um make it as eclectic as you like you don't have to I'm sure Chen you don't cook your, your regular roast chicken every week tell everyone some tips of and doing a little bit of what you're doing and, and spread that that wonderful Jewish joy and also a great way to meet other Jewish people as well yeah absolutely oh my god I couldn't agree more I mean I the the reason I started those Shabbat dinners was because I wasn't invited to any Shabbat dinners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I said, you know what, I'm just going to invite people. And then people started inviting me over. And um I think that's yeah, that's the way to do it. It's just to invite people um over. I I also started because I I wanted to try some of my mother's recipes. I, I I was cooking, but not really into it. And I started cooking my my Iraqi mother's recipes from my grandmother. Um that's a bit that's a (laughs) master chef level but it is my favorite thing oh my god um but like more basic stuff you know yes yes um yeah and i I started inviting people and it was so much fun to just have people sitting around that we all have this thing in common the jewish identity so i i would recommend yeah don't don't if don't be afraid of it of hosting i know a lot of people are afraid of hosting it's not it's not that difficult like you just invite people over if you if you don't know how to cook that's also okay luckily you can go to tesco and buy ready meals and i'm sure people would not know you know just put them in nice bowls that's that's what matters uh, <laughs> great shabbat hack great shabbat hack <laughs> yeah it's all about the nice bowls and uh yeah and just and just have you know ask people to bring something to bring dessert or to bring to bring a bottle of something and then and then come together and um and and have just it's the thing is there's no there's no need for uh anything else any manual because things will just be amazing because that's what friday dinners are about and that's why shabbat is such an important moment and and i just it's really really easy i can't really i can't even express how easy it is but until you try it you won't realize how easy it is so i really encourage everyone to just just go ahead and do that it's something that I think our generation are really, you know, we talk about Judaism evolving. I think we're really leaning into this Shabbat dinner and the idea that you can make it your own, you know, you can uh, utilize traditions if you want to, twist them a little bit, but it's about the separation from the rest of the week, the togetherness, it's just a, a special thing. Now, I want to talk to you about your book. This is a uh, Exclusive news on the podcast that Hen, um, am I right? You've got a book coming out later this year. I want to hear all about it, when it's out, what we're going to learn from your book, because this is this is very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting for me too. 
we have two working titles. Um, hopefully we'll we'll figure out one. But if you follow me on my social media, I promise to to well, put, it, put it out on a poll. Put it out on an Instagram poll. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's actually a good idea. Maybe I should do that. Um, so uh, yeah, but the book is coming out this year. Uh, hopefully towards November, that's where the book will be will be out for. Um, out basically um and it's a uh, it's somewhat a mix between a memoir and manifesto um i told you i i always felt like it's i don't i don't have enough stories for a memoir uh, but as i was writing i felt like i could write a whole memoir but i decided to make it more of i'm talking about the story of jews from the middle east and north africa i feel like the story is just not told enough that's the main premise of the book i'm starting with my family's history um and through that the, the story of all those communities those 30 communities that were um, ethnically cleansed from their homelands, uh, from well, not their homelands, but the home countries and, and moved to, and many of them by and large moved to Israel. I'm sharing the story of growing up in Israel, um, some of the things that we spoke about today. Uh, and then I'm speaking about coming out of the closet in the army, how that was, and then comparing that and coming out of the closet in the sense of being proud of my Mizrahi identity. Um, I also make this explaining Mizrahi and Sephardi identity more in depth. I spoke to dozens of experts and scholars from all over the world, from uh, from France uh, to uh, to LA, Jewish scholars that gave me so much uh, nuance and, and, and a better understanding of, uh, of this story. Uh, and the last part of the book is the important part, and that's also the longest. It's, the, it's this Mizrahi manifesto. It's this, first of all, you learn about Mizrahi history, and that's really important. I think there was a poll just that came out recently that um, um, 75% of Israelis uh, said that they know the history of European Jews, but only like 13% know the history of Mizrahi Jews. Um, and that's very, it's, it's a shame because while I know the stories of, um, of the Holocaust and, and, and I know most, almost every name of every death camp in Europe, and it's important for me because that's my family, that's my community. But when I ask my Ashkenazi friends, they, they don't know the name, they, they don't know what the Farhud was. Um, they don't know, even some Israelis don't even know what the Farhud was, this, this two days of violent attacks against the Jews of, the, of Iraq. So my, my plea for, for the Jewish people that are going to read the book is to, is to do more to learn about each other. And I'm asking Israeli Jews to, to really be proud of their identity and celebrate that and, and teach that, that culture to other Jews and, and tell them about their history and not be ashamed of it. And I'm also and I'm asking non-Mizrahi to, to make sure that they're making space to Mizrahi culture and, and Mizrahi heritage and that they are celebrating it. And I think that it's also going to help us in the conversation around, around Israel and, um, and around intersectionality and the understanding of that Jewish identity is very diverse and that the Mizrahim are just an evidence that Jews came from the Middle East and some of us just never left, but we all started from there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's what the book is about. So it's coming out with Wicked Sun. And it's if you follow me on social media, you'll find, uh, you'll find more information once it's out. Absolutely. And we'll link to all your um, social media handles. And you know what, Ken, let's do another episode when it's out and we can dive into, yes. into the book maybe read an excerpt or I'd like to do an episode actually with you like specifically focused on Mizrahi culture let's get some Mizrahi pop music in there oh. <laughs> uh, you know I, I for one love love uh, you know from my Israeli background I love some of the Mizrahi pop music in Israel I mean that's that's sometimes what I think of when I think of Mizrahi you know um, that and but, yeah. but it, it's, it's yeah you're right it's not talked about enough it's not out there enough and I think I think your book will address the balance and it will be interesting also to to dive into more about you and and it's a sort of memoir of sorts isn't it yeah I would love to do that to do another one and, and it's so true what you're saying I mean I write about that in the book exactly you know people come Jewish people that are non-Mizrahi that are coming from the diaspora to Israel they love Israel they're saying that they love the flavors and they love the smell and they love the music and they love the culture and they just can't put their finger on what it is and what it is is Mizrahi <laughs> the culture in Israel is Mizrahi because Jew Mizrahi Jews are the majority in Israel and it's um and the music is and the, and the food is and the flavors that you you know when we're speaking about Mizrahi when speaking about Israeli food or Israeli cuisine it's very Mizrahi um, and I'm also tackling the idea that we stole those recipes that were the only things that my grandparents brought with them to Israel 
which in, in and of itself is ridiculous. But the point is that it's really, um, this is why a lot of people love Israel. It's this Mizrahi thing about Israel that I feel like we should celebrate all of that. And, and you know, we I want more people to, to understand that. So we're going to finish off, Chen, with some quick fire questions. You ready for these? Yes, please. Okay. Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? Tel Aviv. Hummus, appetizer or main dish? Both. <laughs> no, you've got to choose one. <laughs> Dessert. <laughs> that too. Um, yeah. Well, I would, I'm leaning towards a uh, main dish, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, hiking up Masada or swimming in the Dead Sea? Oof, Masada. Um, which, which Jewish celebrity would you most want to interview for your book? Oh, wow. Um, Isaac Mizrahi. Favorite Jewish food? Mm, kube. Mm. We'll link to a kube recipe, I think, because that's, I think, us without Iraqi mothers know what it is, but we want everybody to know what kube is. It's that <laughs> Buy or bake a challah? Uh, I wish I knew how to bake, so I have to say bye. <laughs> smashing the glass or a big horror? Smashing the glass. It has to be smashing the glass. Chen is engaged to be married. I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> and finally, Chen, if you could have Friday night dinner, a Shabbat dinner, with any three Jewish people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Wow. Um, how many? Three. Three. Okay, so I think I would say Zev Jabotinsky, Maimonides and Barbara Streisand. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, we'll see what we can do if we can make that happen for you. <laughs> so, Ken, it has been so much fun talking to you today. Um, I'm so excited to meet you. By the time this podcast comes out, we will have met in person. We will be together in person, actually, yes. in Tel Aviv um, on, on this influencer program, which I am so excited for. I promise if you're listening, I will do a podcast episode all about the experience. And it just leaves me to say thank you for everything you do and for being a guest today on the Your Jewish Life Your Way podcast. Of course. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And uh, I feel like it's just the beginning. I can't wait to come over for a Friday dinner. <laughs> oh, all the best. If this episode inspired you in some way, I'd love you to take a screenshot of you listening on your device and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at Your Jewish Life. I'd love to be Instagram friends. I'd also be thrilled if you wanted to share this episode with anyone you know who might benefit from it and subscribe so you don't miss an episode as well. If you want to do another mitzvah, if you leave a review, that would be amazing because that way more people get to see the podcast, get to know about the podcast and we can spread our wonderful Jewish joy all over. So that would be fabulous if you wanted to leave me a review. Just before I go, I've got a little gift for you and it's going to put a big Jewish joy smile on your face and it is my personal ultimate Jewish joy Spotify playlist. It's 50 uplifting Jewish joy songs that are perfect for dancing around the living room or blasting out in the car and just immersing yourself in Jewish joy. It's the best Jewish music and Israeli music covering all kinds of genres and styles and it is so uplifting and so fun. It's guaranteed joy whether you're Jewish, Jewish or becoming Jewish. I think you're gonna Love it. So just head to yourjewishlife.co slash playlist to grab it. That's yourjewishlife.co.co, that is, slash playlist. Playlist is all one word. You can grab the Spotify playlist and you can be dancing around your living room and feeling fabulous in a matter of minutes. So off you go and I will see you back here for the next episode. <laughs>